0: Welcome to QuackCast 49, plus or minus one. I don't really know what number this is anymore. One well, These days I will have to go back and renumber all these, but eh, so tedious. This is yet another QuackCast that is a somewhat of a redo of a science-based medicine post. It's entitled, Bought and Sold, Who Should Pay for CME? There are two topics about which I am a crank. The first, as you might have guessed, is so-called alternative medicine. And the other is pharmaceutical reps. Drug companies are somewhat schizophrenic. They have amazing scientists who invent drugs that treat an astounding array of diseases. Then they take these drugs and turn them over to marketing it be sold with all the enthusiasm and truthiness of a late-night infomercial. In the spirit of openness, I will say that I have not talked to a drug rep in 20 years. As far as industry-supported gifts and food, I have not taken a pen or eaten a pizza from industry in almost 30 years, since I was a fourth-year medical student. I have, I will admit, accepted one gift over the years. Years ago, when the Pfizer rep left, he sent me a fleet's enema with the Unison sticker on it. I still have that enema in my office, unused. But you never know when an enema might come in handy. Being an absolutist about industry gifts of all types does have downsides. It is distracting to sit in an auditorium filled with the smell of pizza and not eat any. Somehow the peanut butter and jelly I bring with me doesn't smell as sweet. Administration has received one letter complaining about me that was ostensibly from an employee, but curiously was printed from a Windows folder whose name was the same as the local levofloxacin rep. Hmm, probably just a coincidence, I am sure. As an infectious disease fellow, I was the on-call physicians for the hospital's antibiotic stewardship program, where expensive or problematic drugs had to be approved by the ID fellow, before they could be released from the pharmacy. It was curious how there would be spikes in approval requests, often for drugs that the surgical resident couldn't pronounce correctly. There ain't no drug called ciprofloxacillin, although there probably should be. Investigation would reveal that these spikes in requests occurred most frequently after one service or another had been treated to a good dinner by the drug rep. Hmm, funny thing that. Probably just another coincidence. Although people will say that they are not influenced by gifts, I remember once as an intern late at night trying to decide what antibiotic to give a patient. And I looked at my pen and thought, huh, I'll give that a try. And I prescribed what was embossed upon my pen. I got a call later from the pharmacy telling me BIC was not on the formulary. Thank you, thank you. I'll be here all night. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Over the years, it has been rare to find a physician as extremist as I am. It is curious, since the literature supports the concept that interaction with pharmaceutical reps is detrimental to patient care. Docs who interact with reps are more likely to prescribe expensive and or inappropriate antibiotics and other drugs after being detailed. However, when pointed out, every doctor tells me the same thing. Uh, that may be true of others, but I'm not swayed by information provided by drug reps. Not me. It is one of those areas of science-based medicine to which physicians are immune, and understandably so. I mean, really, who wants to jeopardize free pizza? Most of the literature on the topic is collected at nofreelunch.org, which appears to be under construction. It all may be publication bias, but I know of no reference that demonstrates improved patient care as a result of physicians interacting with drug companies. So imagine my surprise when someone comes out in favor of physician learning from pharmaceutical companies. Over at Slate.com is Appetite for Instruction, Why Big Pharma Should Buy Your Doctor Lunch Sometimes, by a Jessica Wapner. The article starts out sedately enough, quote, The war against industry-sponsored medical education is in full tilt, end quote. War? Now, there's an interesting choice of words. I would have started the article by writing, Physicians are finally reclaiming their integrity after whoring for 50 years. But, hey, I have a dog in this fight. Quote, But with the mounting concern about ties between doctors and pharmaceutical industry, commercially supported medical education is being axed from hospitals and university medical centers around the country. Not only is this change unfortunate for anyone with a doctor... But it also doesn't make any sense. End quote. Well, it does make sense if you have bothered to read the extensive literature on the topic. The preponderance of data strongly suggests that medical practice and research is altered, and not necessarily for the better, by interaction with big pharma. She quotes only one reference in her article in support of drug company sponsored education. Quote, There is no substitute for a small group of people listening to a doctor talk about how to treat a disease, and there is no substitute for commercial support required to run such a program. In a recent study, academic researchers were paid a modest honorarium to travel around the country teaching more than 14,000 doctors about new treatment guidelines for high blood pressure. Each researcher met with a small group of doctors to educate them about the latest advances. In counties where the most sessions took place, adherence to the guidelines rose by more than eight percent. In counties with the fewest such sessions, adherence decreased by two percent. The approach that the pharmaceutical industry has been taking for years is actually an effective way to educate doctors, end quote. The recent study refers to impact of the all hat JNC seven dissemination project on thiazide type diabetic use. I pulled the article, and what a surprise. The article does not say what the author thinks it says. The academic researchers were educating physicians about generic medications. It was supported by an NIH grant, not pharmaceutical money, and if they were paid an honorarium, it is not mentioned in the reference. This is what we call academic detailing or counter-detailing, and it is what we do in medicine to try and give evidence-based, minimally biased information about treatments in an attempt to give practitioners information free from pharmaceutical companies spin and bias. Quote, academic detailing incorporates many of the approaches used in pharmaceutical marketing. By using persuasive, individualized, small group, and one-on-one communication of key points, Detailing can summarize findings, suggest concrete change in practice patterns, and explore potential barriers to change. In addition, by targeting specific physicians recognized as opinion leaders, resources can be concentrated on locally influential prescribers. Several systemic reviews have examined the effectiveness of academic detailing in changing clinical practice and found this type of intervention to be effective. The effectiveness of academic detailing is described as ranging from small to strong with results are consistently favorable. The effectiveness of academic detailing in affecting prescribing practices is particularly prominent. In this situation, even small changes in prescribing may be important when the population affected is large or where large cost differences exist between alternative medications. Academic detailing is Spock without the goatee. Now, the effect of the intervention in this study was modest. It was quote associated with a small effect on thiazide type diuretic use consistent with its small dose and potential of external factors to diminish its impact. Huh What external factors might have impacted the results of this study quote? There substantial questioning of the all-hat findings by recognized hypertension authorities, as well as by the pharmaceutical industry that likely reduced the potential impact on the results of clinical practice. Huh. So the authors suggest that using inexpensive, effective generic drugs for hypertension was being undermined by the drug companies. Why well, wasn't that mentioned in the reference by the author? Duh. The take-home message is that academic detailing, using the methods of drug rep, but not their funding and not their message, is an effective alternative to pharma-financed education. It so irritates me when I read the original reference and discovered it was almost completely misrepresented or misunderstood. I suppose this author will be writing for Medical Voices next. When Consumer Reports discusses cars, it is education. When Chrysler discusses cars, it is an advertisement, even if they are having Dale Earhart Jr. as the discussant. She also says that the lack of pharmaceutical-sponsored education leads to an increase in the misuse of drugs. No reference. So I went looking. PubMed? Nothing. Google? Well, the only reference I find on this statement is her article. Quote, Stephen Hanauer, one of the clinical investigators who developed Remicade, and who has been paid to speak to doctors about it, explains that as Remicade teaching sessions have been mixed, misuse of the drug has risen, and Hanauer thinks that the two phenomenon are connected, end quote. So the basis of the increased misuse of drug is the experience of one Dr. Hanauer. Well, good enough for me. Let's get him back on the paid speaker trail as soon as possible. Patient care depends on it. Even if the literature suggests that it is the interaction with pharmaceutical companies that most commonly leads to medication misprescribing. But hey, who are you going to believe? The published literature are the anecdotes of Dr. Hanauer. And he has been paid to speak. I hate to say this, but I kind of wonder how much. Because the money could be substantial. Quote The largest median payments were for research sixty five hundred and ninety-three dollars. Speakers fourteen thirty, range 118 one hundred and eighteen to one hundred and fifty four thousand. Consulting thousand dollars, range one hundred and twenty-one to three hundred and thirty four thousand in unspecified purposes. A thousand dollars range one hundred to three hundred and thirty-one thousand doctors can make some serious money talking for drug companies. I've always thought that as part of the mentioning of conflicts of interest at the start of a talk, speakers should be required to give the exact dollar amount of direct and indirect food, hotels, airfare, etc. payments that they have received. Does anybody think that $331,000 isn't going to buy something? I know if I were making this kind of cash as a speaker in this economy with current Medicare reimbursement, I would want to keep that cash cow alive as long as possible. But I really shouldn't suggest that others are subject to base motivations for their action. I am beginning to sound a wee bit too much like Mike Adams. Of course, if the drug company doesn't provide food, no one will come to the talks. Quote, But surely there must be other options. Can't doctors meet with experts in the absence of fancy cheese? Not necessarily. Teaching sessions often take place during the lunch hour. As Hanauer, who practices at the University of Chicago School of Medicine, describes, the elimination of paid lunches sent hungry doctors to the cafeteria instead of the lecture hall. Quote, But the lines were so long that they missed the conference, he says. So attendance to our Grand Rounds conference went to minuscule. Now the doctor has a sandwich, but he isn't up to date on how to treat a serious disease. That may sound silly, because it is, but it's often the mundane reality. There are sometimes times when the resident has to choose between lunch and a conference, Richard Goldberg, an oncologist at the University of South Carolina, wrote in an email. I just had to laugh. In my hospital system, administration takes education seriously, so there is lunch provided at Grand Rounds. We get a sandwich and a lecture. University of Chicago is evidently not all that serious about the school part of their title. Or, I don't know, try planning ahead. Let's see, it's Wednesday. We've had eh, grand rounds every Wednesday at noon for the last hundred years. Maybe I'll pack a sandwich. Please, if my doc doesn't have enough on the ball to plan for eating at a conference, I don't want them prescribing my Remicade. Of course, I don't know how I manage to keep up in my field with no pharmaceutical support. I can't read journals. I can't use websites like Medscape. I'm a played blogger for Medscape, so of course I suggest them. I can't go to conferences. I can't listen to podcasts. I can't attend meetings. I can't do the MKSAP. Oh, poor me! There is such a wealth of educational opportunities in medicine to keep up that either you have to be stupid or lazy not to find them. All it takes is a little discipline and time to keep up. I spend about 24 hours a month on continuing medical education. If you want a job that requires no CME, perhaps you should be a naturopath or a homeopath. Part of being a physician, I'm sorry, is the endless education it takes to stay current. It's part of our responsibility. She continues, quote, The problem is that drugs have more and different uses than the FD-approved indications, and the only way that information can be disseminated is pharma-sponsored education. The only way? Sure works for Neurontin. Quote from the New England Journal of Medicine, Park Davis executive reportedly told Franklin, I want you to be out there every day selling Neurontin. We all know Neurontin's not growing for adjunctive therapy. Besides, that's not where the money is. Pain management, now that's money. Monotherapy for epilepsy, that's money. We can't wait for physicians to ask. We need to get out there and tell them up front. Dinner programs, CME programs, consultantships all work great. But don't forget the one-on-one. That's where we need to be. Holding their hand and whispering in their ear, Neurontin for pain, Neurontin for monotherapy, Neurontin for bipolar, Neurontin for everything. I don't want to see a single patient coming off Neurontin before they've been using up to at least 4,800 milligrams a day. I don't want to hear that safety crap either. Have you tried Neurontin? Every one of you should take just one to see that there is nothing. It's a great drug. The Neurontin marketing plan consisted of general strategies such as the promotion of Neurontin, use among high prescribing physicians, and cultivation of thought leaders and tactical programs. Local physicians were recruited, trained, and paid to serve as speakers in peer to peer selling programs, which the company saw as one of the most effective ways to communicate our message. Academic leaders were solicited with educational grants, research grants, and speaking opportunities. Some received up to $158,000 over a four year period. Advisory boards and consultants were convened so that the firm could cultivate relationships with them and deliver a hard-heading message about Neurontin. Marketing tactics included education, publications, and research whose promotional intent was disguised, in addition to more transparent activities such as advertising and sales visits. Educational programs reflected the belief that medical education drives the market. Teleconferences involving practicing physicians were moderated by physicians who were paid as much as $176,000 over four years. Park Davis formed speakers bureaus and sought strong Neurontin advocates and users to speak locally for Neurontin. Unrestricted educational grants were made for nonprofit medical education companies that produced programs to discuss unapproved uses of Neurontin and to grant credit approved by the ed- Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, end quote. Yep, that's what I want for my continuing medical education. Programs that resulted in payments of more than $430 million to resolve criminal charges and civil liabilities. Of course, industry has learned their lesson. I can trust industry and my patients' life and health with the information about off-label indications provided by industry that stands to profit from giving the information. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, Fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me, you can't get fooled again. She concludes, quote, But the entanglement caused by the for-profit drug development can't be undone by eliminating the free lunch. As one physician suggested, perhaps pharmaceutical companies should be required to pay for medical education. After all, if companies are going to unleash new drugs into the world, shouldn't they be responsible for teaching people how to use them? Ousting commercial support is creating a huge chasm in medical education, leaving doctors not only hungry but also starve for knowledge, end quote. No, but it is a start. Physicians can take responsibility for their own education. I do. And the lunch isn't free. In the end, our patients pay for it. The price of drugs, in part, takes into account the cost of advertisement. Maybe you feel it is fine for the underinsured to pay $1,500 out-of-pocket for a 10-day course of lenazolid, but somehow I have difficulty justifying my patients indirectly subsidizing my pizza and education. One argument is made that the drug companies are going to spend the money anyway, so it will not affect drug costs or promotion. It is an interesting rebuttal to an ethical question. If you think something is the ethical thing to do, then you do it because it's ethical. You do what's right because it is Right not because it is convenient and not because it has effects on others you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and embarrassment and avoidance of embarrassment are strong human motivators i think doc should be embarrassed to compromise what little integrity we have left by being seen as pharmaceutical shills and pawns although for the record for enough money I would decorate my white coat with more patches than an NASCAR driver. Is not that I don't have a price? I do, but no one has yet to meet it. And while we are at it, let's have McDonald's be responsible for teaching nutrition. Nintendo teaches about fitness. We not included. Lobbyists determine the congressional voting, and tobacco companies provide research into cancer and oil companies to tell us the cause of global warming. The only way that information can be disseminated is, fill in the industry, sponsored education. Indeed. The conclusion of the only other journal article referenced in the Slate article sums it up. Attending sponsored CME events and accepting funding for travel or lodging for educational symposia are associated with an increased prescription rates of the sponsor's medication. Attending presentations given by pharmaceutical representative speakers was also associated with non-rational prescribing. That's the chasm that's being created by banning pharmaceutical-sponsored education. More rational prescribing, more physician integrity, and more patient trust. Better education and better information. I can live with that. And... So, can my patients. And so we end the rant. Quackcast 49. As always, join my growing multimedia empire over at moremarket.squarespace.com, where you can find links to science based medicine, Gavido Pus, Rubordorlor Kalor Tumor, and the ever popular PusCast, because the world needs more Mark Chryslip. See you next time. Bye.